Turn with me, ironically, tonight, to Psalm 121. Where's Rick? Did he leave? He must have stepped out. I was amazed when Rick started reading that passage of Scripture before we prayed just a bit ago, because that was a passage I want to begin with tonight to show something. And so, as I see it, that's just a great confirmation from the Lord that uh, we're on the right path here, on the right track. Uh, there he comes in right now. Uh, and he has no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> okay. Psalm 121, uh, the word of David, the psalm of, of, a psalm of ascents. These were psalms that the children of Israel would sing on their way up to, to uh, Jerusalem on the high holy days. Uh, when they were going to worship, these songs of ascent, which you'll find starting in uh, Psalm 120, uh, you find them. these are songs they would sing to praise God as they're on their way. And, and the thing I want you to see here in Psalm 121, and I appreciate Ricky reading that for us, uh, is that uh, there's a statement in there in the fourth line, really. It's the second line of verse 2, where it talks about, or just verse 2, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And then he makes the tie of that. He says, I get help from the Lord who made heaven and earth, who will not allow your foot to slip, who keeps you and will not slum who keeps you and will not slumber. Uh, behold, he keeps Israel, and he will never sleep nor slumber. The Lord is your keeper. Now, the point I want you to see there is that the psalmist, and this is just a one example. You could go to probably hundreds of others in the scripture, where the idea that God is the maker of heaven and earth, God is the creator of heaven and earth, is tied to an understanding that he is our protector also, and he is our sustainer, that because he is our creator, he also sustains us, because he is our creator, he also watches over us, because he is our creator, he not only gave life at the beginning, but he also continues to sustain life and breath and our movement and everything else in this life. Now last week we looked in the, in the creed at that second line there, <laughs> it just goes out when I say to look at it, oh well, <clears throat> you remember it. I believe in God the Father Almighty, and it came back by itself. I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. We've looked at what it means to believe. We've looked at the importance of creeds and confessions. We looked at what it means that God is Father Almighty. And last week, we looked at what it means that he is the maker of heaven and earth. And, and I, I covered pretty much everything I wanted to cover last week, but I, I felt like I left a few dangling articles there, or dangling ideas. I started to say participles, but that's not what I left dangling. Uh, just a few dangling ideas that I wanted to come back to and touch on tonight. Specifically, why does the earth look so old? If, if the creation story is as it is, why does the earth look so old, and does it really matter? Uh, it's real funny that I started out, or I say, you know, sometimes in sermons, you have to understand, I've got more notes tonight than normally I ever have. But in sermons, I usually come to the pulpit either with no notes, just some underlying words in the text to keep my mind in the order it goes in, or a few notes here, a few words, a brief outline or something to look at. That's typically what I have here. It's what I had last week primarily. And uh, the mind does funny things, or at least mine does. Mine may be unique in that way. But uh, while I'm preaching on something, something pops in my mind, and all of a sudden I think, well, that's a great idea to mention that. 
And that happened last week. I was preaching along, and I thought about the message that Al Mohler preached in, at the Ligonier Conference back in June, and I said, you know, Al Mohler preached on why does the earth look so old? And that's all I ever said about it. And we got home, and Retta said, were you saying that was good or that was bad, you know? And I thought, well, maybe I might ought to go back and clarify that. Matter of fact, I was so concerned about it, I went in and edited the, the recording of the sermon and just took that section out. So if you listen to the sermon online or you get a CD of it, it Al Mulder's not even mentioned in last week's sermon anymore. It's just gone completely. But he did bring a great message. And uh, you can go on legionnaire.org and actually watch it online and see what he had to say. You can watch the video of it. But it was a tremendous message assessing why does the earth look so old, and why is that important? Why should that be a question that we struggle with? Well, the reason is, is because if you read Genesis chapter 1, turn with me there again, we looked at that last week, but if you read Genesis chapter 1, and let's just make an assumption here, you're reading Genesis for the first time. You have never read this book, you've never perhaps even read any of the Bible, but you come to Genesis chapter 1. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'll just read like I did last week, a few verses. But I want you to get a feel of something here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Okay? Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning a second day. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their own kind with a seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their own kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Now, if you were to read that text without hearing what is sometimes called the, the settled understanding of science, if you were to read that without having any other uh, any other, if you will, data given to you, what would you think upon reading that? Would you read that and say, well, that's easy to see. We're talking about billions and billions of years here. Or you, would you read that and say, well, it sounds as if the revelation is giving to, given to us by God is saying God created. He spoke and there was light and he separated light and darkness and there was one day, morning and evening, it was one day and, and that was it. There was a period of time, what we would call a day, a 24-hour period, talking about evening and darkness. And he goes right on through that, right on down until he talks about the creation of man. And he says that is, he did it again, he saw it was good, and it was morning and evening, and that was one day. 
And there's six of those days in order. And then it says, and on the seventh day, God rested. Now, God didn't rest because he was tired. God didn't rest because, man, that was tough speaking those things into existence. But God rested as an example and to show us what the cycle of life ought to be like that we live in. But what I want you to see is if you read that, the common sense reading of Genesis chapters 1 through 3 give the idea that the creation took place in a period of time, a short period of time, of 24-hour days that are six days of creation, one day of rest, a seven-day week, that God created everything that there is, and that is really the common sense reading of that. Would you, would you agree with that? Whether you believe that or not, would you agree? If you read that, that's the common sense reading of what the writer is saying. But we have a problem. We have a problem because there's been the discovery of the geological record. And, and the geologists tell us there's layer after layer after layer that would have to have come by over millions and even billions of years. And so if you dig down and you find these different things around and, and they're, they're there and they're not there now, but they're, they're compressed and we do carbon dating and we do all these things on them. And now we have all of a sudden billions of years. So the discovery of the geological record has thrown some doubt upon Genesis chapter 1. There's also been the emergence of Darwin's theory of evolution. That, that man came out of something that was already there and, and there was, there was a, a microbe and then that developed into a little bit more advanced form of life and that advanced a little further and that went a little further until finally out of, out of all of these billions of years from nothing evolved us as we are with brains that reason and think and with, with, with voices that speak words that we can understand and with, with all sorts of things. And, and Darwin's theory has laid out this case that, that the secular world has bought into majorly, and even some Christians have, that says, listen, we just believe that that, that answers everything. Now, God was somehow in that, according to Christians. Now, the secular and the new atheists want you to say that God had no part of it. God doesn't even, is not even needed for, for life to be where it is today. But, but those Christians, those professing Christians who would, who would adapt or try to adopt Darwin's theory would say God's in it somewhere. He's kind of guiding it for all these billions of years. And he's, he's a very patient person if that's taking place, that's for sure. There, there's a third thing that has caused this Genesis 1 to be questioned a bit, and that is the discovery of, of ancient Near Eastern parallels to the biblical account. There are other writings that have creation stories that are, are somewhat similar in some ways to, to the Genesis story, and so it's just assumed by literary scholarship that that's where the writer of Genesis drew his from. Quite honestly, I don't see why we can't assume that those groups drew theirs from Genesis rather than the other way around. But there's been that discovery of these parallels. And then finally, there's the development of higher criticism and new approaches to the Bible. Higher criticism says, oh, but we must take this and we must dissect it and we must deal with it based on, on what we know to be true from science. We must interpret Scripture in light of science. I say to you, if we're, if we're honest to God and honest to the Word, we will interpret science in light of Scripture. We will interpret what we see in the world in the general revelation in light of the special revelation that God has given us. Now, I realize that sounds 
antiquated, that sounds out of date, and, and some people today will say, well, now you've got a... Yeah, you've got advanced degrees and you've got advanced training beyond those degrees and surely you don't believe that. But as I told you last week, yes, indeed, I do believe that. Because you see, it was the, I loved what Moeller said in his message. He made this statement. He said that the fact that there were six or seven 24-hour days, literal days, as we would see in the creation, he said this was the, I love this statement, the overwhelming, untroubled consensus of the church until the 19th century. The overwhelming, untroubled consensus of the church until the 19th century. That is, the church believed it. They said, this is what God has said, and we stake our claim on it, and we believe it. But what we have to come down to, and it all comes down to this, there are really only two options when we seek an answer for this. The option is, one, that the world is indeed very, 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 very old. Or, the world looks old, but it's not really as old as it appears. Those are our only two options. But when we ask why the universe looks old, and we keep each of these challenges in mind, the geological record, the theory of evolution, and those, uh, we have to keep those in mind. But first we need to ask just how old the universe appears to look. The span of time over the last few years, even in our lifetime and in our adult lifetime, the span of time that is claimed to be has grown exponentially, quite honestly, uh, since people began first to question that. So the earth, age of the earth, according to the accepted consensus of science, has, has gotten older and older and older. Currently, the consensus, such as it is, you'd have to kind of look around to uh, to, to find a real consensus because there are all sorts of different things. But roughly, you can say the consensus for the age of the earth is roughly 4.5 billion years old, while the earth is roughly 13, I mean, excuse me, the universe is roughly 13.5 billion years old. Now, what is the urgency of this question? The answer is, is it's, it's urgent because there's a lot of flip going on within it right now in our own, um, within, within Christianity. There's a lot of people. I mentioned last week Dr. Bruce Walkie, who had been one of my uh, Old Testament heroes, who has come to the point of saying that we must embrace evolution because if we don't, evangelicalism will be reduced to being viewed as a cult. The current mental environment in which we live is an environment that is shaped by the intellectual assumption that the world is very old. And to speak contrary to that, say anything different from that, uh, comes many times for a believer at a significant cost. But an even greater urgency is there, is pressed upon us because of the new atheism. Because the new atheism takes A and B and says if A is true and B is true, then C must be true, and C being true means there is no God. And so there's a lot of stuff at stake here, a lot of stuff going on. When you look at this reading of Genesis chapter 1, there are really four major options that you look at that the literature will talk about being options for what you think about the age of the earth and how you interpret specifically the first two chapters of Genesis. One is the traditional 24-hour calendar day view. Uh, this was the most straightforward reading of the text. As I already said, if you just read the text with no preconceived notion, that's what you'll come away thinking. That's what you'll come away believing, that the Bible affirms that there is a sequential pattern of 24-hour days for six days of creation and one day of rest, thus a week 
that encompasses the beginning of all that there is. For at least 2,000 years, or, or 1,800 years at least, the church accepted that as the unchallenged and untroubling view. They saw that as being, that's the way it is. God created. Now, this morning somebody asked me, said, uh, that was here last week, said, you mean you don't believe in the Big Bang Theory? And I said, well, depends on how you look at the Big Bang. I don't believe in the secular Big Bang Theory. That is that nothing was there and all of a sudden mass and energy came together and exploded and created energy or created mass or matter. I, I don't believe that because it makes no sense whatsoever. You know, I don't like bumper stickers very much, but if you, if you mean by the Big Bang Theory, the bumper sticker I saw one time uh, where it said, I believe in the Big Bang Theory. God spoke it, bang, it was there, and I believe it. So that, that, that Big Bang Theory I can buy into, I suppose. But, but the truth of the matter is this, this secular, naturalistic view that somehow there was nothing out there and all of a sudden something came together to make something more is, is kind of troubling. The second view of looking at Genesis chapter, or the first two chapters, is what they call the day-age view. We looked at that. And that's talking about the Hebrew word for day need not always refer to a 24-hour calendar day, but might refer to an indefinite and presumably long period of time. Uh, such days are overlapping and not entirely distinct according to those who hold to the day-age view. That is that the word day, yom, is, is, sort of a, is sort of a word that means period or phase or time. And some hold that by that, you don't have to translate that day. You can say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. And you get down to verse uh, 5, and he called it evening and morning, and that meant one eon. Well... Evening and morning, one eon. That's not the natural reading of what the writer is trying to communicate. There's another one called the framework theory, which is just a theory that, that kind of ties in something to the day age and something to the fourth theory I'm going to talk about. But it, but it just kind of says there's, Genesis is just giving us a framework. Genesis is just saying God did it, but it's not really telling us how he did it. Well, it's not telling us in specifically how he did it, but it is kind of telling us that he did it. And he did it rather dramatically, and he did it rather, it sounds like, fairly instantly, and it sounds like he spoke it for the most part. It's his spoken word that brings about the creation. And then the fourth one is the literary theory, and that's kind of the higher critical theory where you take the first 11 chapters of Genesis just as literary, understanding that creation is a myth, and a story that was understood by the ancient Hebrews but should not be transported into our day. Now, we, we need to note that only one of those brings about or necessitates a young earth, and that is the traditional 24-hour day. The others at least allow for, if not requiring, a very, very, very old earth. I think the literary theory has to be rejected out of hand, or, or else it then contradicts the whole issue of inerrancy of Scripture. If the, if the literary uh, view is true, then we cannot claim an inerrant word. We cannot claim an infallible word. We cannot claim a true word from God because it's thrown out just as myth and nothing else. The framework theory is held by some prominent evangelicals, but, but it at least is the least of the defensible positions when we realize that it's based not just on a long period of time, but that the sequence doesn't matter. 
it's simply not credible that God gave us a text with such detail and, and sequential development so that we might learn about his providential direction and it not be true. The day-age theory uh, involves fewer entanglements in some ways because the word can be translated differently, but it still involves important issues related to theology and exegesis. Now we're getting down to the real crux of this thing and what really makes it a matter of concern and a matter of consideration. When we look at the creed and it says, God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, what are the real issues involved in whether that is true or not? Well, the first is, the first concern is the integrity of Scripture. The integrity of Scripture. What you have here is a claim that this is God's revealed word. That, this, that God tells the story of, of the, the creation, the story of the fall, the story of redemption in Christ, and the story of consummation that is yet to come. But if you have a fallacy on the, end of, on, on the first side of it, on the first end of it, on creation, then what's to say we don't have a fallacy on the redemptive part of it, that it's in Jesus Christ alone? That's what the Word tells us. How do we know if the creation is not true? How do we know that the fall is not just some kind of myth also? It's in those first 11 chapters, and, and the new atheist would say the, that the fall is a myth, that man is really good. Man is basically a good person, and, and we just got to educate man, we just got to help him do better, and, and they'll be a better person. But we know from experience as well as the Scripture, that's just not true. And so you find that, that all of these things start falling into if one is wrong, does not every other area begin to fall apart? As a matter of fact, if you get right down to it, how do we know he's coming again? You know, how do we know that the consummation will be the restoration of all things to their proper order before the fall, during creation, if indeed creation and pre-fall are non-existent things. So I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but the first issue concerns the integrity of Scripture. Then, and in that, comes the historicity of Adam. Uh, is Adam a real person? Or is Adam just a symbol that you know evolved and all of a sudden then there was a man and a woman and God said, okay, I'll take these two, kind of like at McDonald's, I'll take these two and some children with them, and we'll just start here and we'll say this is the beginning. I mean, there's a problem with that. Uh, but then the real problem, not only the integrity of Scripture, but the second question it raises is in regard to the fall. We understand from Genesis 3, the entire narrative of Scripture, and the entire narrative of Scripture, that what we know in the world today as catastrophic, Natural disasters, pain, death, violence, destruction, all of these are the results of the fall according to Scripture. Uh, death itself is a result of the fall. Had there not been a fall in the garden, there would not have been death according, uh, accordingly, it, it appears, what God is saying in Genesis chapter 3. When, when, when man chose to disobey our, our, our federal head, our, our head, of the race, Adam, when he chose as our representative in our place and chose to disobey God, man fell into sin. And from Adam on, sin has been a part of the human condition for every human that's ever been born. If we, uh, we have real problems if we try to interpret a historical fall with an old earth rendering. Because one of the things we have, and, and Paul argues this, that, 
that, that when, sin, when sin came, death came. But if, if Adam was just somewhere in the eons alone there, just kind of sprung up out of the, the, uh, the evolutionary chain, and then God said, well, here's a good place to start. We'll call this man. Well, then all for millions, perhaps even billions of years before Adam, before he was ever in the garden, before there was ever a fall, then you have, you have death. You have decay. You have things dying and, and, and fall into the earth. And some of the geological things says, well, of course, we have, we have dinosaurs and things that existed before Adam, before Eve, and they died for some reason, and there they are in the mix. But it just brings questions about the fall. Keep in mind, if the earth is old, and we determine it's old because the scientific data, which also claims that long before the emergence of Adam, there were all the effects of sin that are biblically attributed to the fall, then no Christian reading of the scripture can ever come to that kind of conclusion. No, no Christian reading of the, of the Bible can ever accept that because it has things happening before the fall that God says are a result of the fall in his word. And so, you know, if that's the case... What does it mean that before the fall, the lion and the lamb laid down together and that one day God is going to restore to this earth that type of order where the lamb and the lion will lay down together again? It has no meaning if there's no meaning in the fall, if there's no results of that. We, we see that everything that we have comes out of an understanding of God's creation and God's creation by fiat which, and by what the theologians call ex nihilo. Out of nothing, God created everything that there is. One of the real problems here and one of the real disasters that has come upon some Christian circles and will come upon the Christian church as a whole if we fail to get a full grasp of God's absolute creation is that we will come to a point where not only is our credibility shot biblically, but we come to a point where we have general revelation trumping special revelation. I'm not going to spend a lot of time, we've talked about that in other, other venues, especially in some studies on Wednesday night on, on systematic theology. But to, to put it simply, if you look with me at, at, at uh, we looked at this last week, Psalm 19. I'll make the differentiation there just real quickly by what David said in Psalm 19. The heavens are declaring, or the heavens are telling the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day, pour, uh, day, to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. That is, people are, are ignoring that. Their line is going out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now those first six verses of Psalm 19 are general revelation. That is what is in science, the discovery in science. I love, if you, there's some copies, I think, back here in our bookstore, and I may even have a couple more in my office. But there's, there's a book there by a guy named Fritz Schaefer. Now, it's not your casual reading. Mark's read it. Uh, but, but Fritz Schaefer is, is, a, is a quantum chemist. Has a PhD, I think it is, from Stanford University out on the West Coast. He now is the 
head of the quantum chemistry department, whatever that is, at, uh, at, at Georgia, the University of Georgia in Athens, Georgia. But, but I, I love to read him, and I love to hear him talk. And I'll never forget, he spoke at my church one time in Stone Mountain, Georgia, when I was pastor there. And, and, and Dr. Schaefer said this. He said, the joy of my work is discovering how God did it, how God created everything. And he said, I hadn't even got to the, to the, to the main part yet, but said, little by little, in, in quantum chemistry and quantum physics and quantum quantum whatever they he said we're we're you're just seeing little pieces of how god put together what he put together and and fritz schaefer is a strong creationist because he said i know that revelation tells me that god created it and i'm just trying to find out how he did it that's a pretty it's a pretty good way to look at things it's a pretty good way to approach it now if you go to the next part of that psalm he says, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is much reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me from hidden faults. Oh, also keep your back keep excuse me keep back your servant from presumptuous sins let them not rule over me and i will be blameless and i will acquit be acquitted of great transgression let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight O lord my rock and my redeemer now in that he says, the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the judgments of the Lord, all those are just words that are referring to the word of God, the special revelation, what God has taught us in his word and through his son, the revelation that comes about. And, and you always judge general revelation by special revelation. Special, special revelation always helps us interpret general revelation it never works the other way because this is what God has said now let's just talk about that for a minute because one thing you'll hear in a lot of a lot of areas today is, is this phrase the assured results of science and, and people will say to you how can you believe in creation when we have the assured results of science and and how can you believe in creation when Darwin has shown us how it happened. Need I remind you that Darwin's teaching is referred to properly as Darwin's theory of evolution? Not Darwin's facts of evolution. Not Darwin's settled, assured results of evolution. It's a theory. It's a thought. It's, it's something that, that if you look at some of the things, you kind of scratch your head and, and wonder. But the question always arises is, if evolution is true, if Darwin, and I believe in evolution, don't get me wrong, I've evolved for the last 59 years. I've evolved for, from a little baby, and I've grown up, and I've matured somewhat, and, and I have evolved in that way. And, and even within our species, there's things that have changed. The little toe is disappearing. Uh, and, you know, I, I, you look at it, you wonder, why is that there? I mean, you know, what's the use 
And it's kind of disappearing over time. There is evolution that is evolution within the species. There's changing developments. Uh, we're getting, well, I won't even go there. But, but uh, we think we're getting smarter. I'm not sure we really are. But, but, you know, there is evolution. Things are changing. But if you look at the, is it the second law of thermodynamics, that evolution is really devolution. It's, it's, it's all decaying. It's all going down. I'm not quite as, uh, uh, as efficient in my physical nature as I was when I was 25 uh, because there is a decaying that's taking place. And that's taking place in every part of the creation. But there is an evolution that takes place within the species. But I have yet to see any science uh, report or any headline in my 59 years of life that says, dog becomes man. All of a sudden, it just moved through it, or, or a new monkey becomes a new man, uh, or, or even a microbe has now become a dog. I mean, it's just not, there's no evolution across the species because God said in Genesis 1, I created things to reproduce after their kind. The, even the trees, even the seeds. The, the, the tree that was created had the seed of its future within itself. It was after its kind. So the assured results of science do not destroy God as creator. And if we start saying, well, we're going to accept the, quote, assured results of science uh, in the air of creation, then where do we stop? What does the assured results of science tell us about the virgin birth of Christ? What does it tell us about the resurrection? What does it tell us about sexual orientation? I mean, there's a lot in the scripture, folks, that is absolutely contrary to the assured results of science. And we must realize that in our day and in our culture and in our time, there is going to be a collision and a confrontation of evolutionary theory and the gospel. They're on a head-on head collision. It's our responsibility to give an answer to the question of why the universe looks so old. But the most natural understanding comes to this. The universe looks old because the creator, creator made it whole from the beginning. If Adam had been created and had died the next day, and some years later an archaeologist dug up his body and looked at the body of Adam, he would never have said, this is a one-day-old person. He said, I don't, I don't know how old Adam was, how old he appeared to be when he was created. He was a day old when he was a day old, but he appeared to be an adult. He, he appeared to be someone, or he was someone, who could go out and till the soil and, and tend the garden. And so he was an adult being, as was Eve when she was created. And so why, if God created a mere mature person, why could he have not created a mature earth? You know, Adam was not a fetus, but he was a man. Our understanding, uh, by our understanding of this world, have required time, but it didn't take the time that, that the evolutionary theory says it would take. Uh, it's, it's not a matter of God trying to trick us or trying to fool us. It's just a matter of fact the way things are. So, how old is the earth in reality? How old is it? Well, I'm going to give you the only absolutely conclusive answer I know. 
It's only known by God. He, he's really the only one that knows with precision how old the earth is. Now, if he, could, if he would tell us tonight, he could tell us exactly. But I will tell you that in his revelation, he has at least given a picture and understanding that it's not as old as the assured results of science would have us to think. It's not as old as some want to make it who want to make it a barrage against biblical authority and biblical truth. God's word is true. God's word is established. And, and for me, with the creed, I say I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker or the creator of heaven and earth. And it's settled as far as I'm concerned. It's not I believe in God Almighty who worked this thing out to the best he could over billions of years. But God created it. Ex nihilo. Out of nothing. It was fiat creation. He didn't have to do it. He just did it. He didn't need you for fellowship. You've heard that. You know, he didn't need you so that you could, so he could have somebody to play with. He did it for his own glory. He did it that we might fall before him and say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. I don't understand all about how he did it, and the scripture doesn't give me every detail I wish it did, and, and God didn't even bother to say, don't you dare say it's anything other than a 24-hour day, but he certainly presented it as though that's exactly what it is. But in the final analysis, the only one that knows is God himself. I think that's where... We have to leave it. And you know what? That's a pretty safe place to acknowledge that we know God knows and we trust him totally. Let's pray. Father, we do believe that you are the creator. And with the Apostles' Creed, we say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. I don't think you needed time plus chance. I don't think you needed a billion years or 14 billion years or 5 billion years to do what you did. I believe you have the power as Almighty God to speak it into existence. And that's the way you've indicated to us that it took place. Father, we trust in that. We, we commit that to you, that, that we trust you. And we believe your word to be true. Help us, Lord, to live under the authority of your word. For this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.